You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. You can take your seats and let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the Bibles in the seats in front of you and find Mark chapter 15 on page 852. Got a text from our Romanian church planter, Adi Rusnak. I usually text him about every week, every Sunday, just asking how things went at M28 there in Bucharest. And he sent me back some pictures and videos that he and some of his elders were actually in Glasgow, Scotland, celebrating what God is doing at Scott Hamilton's church there, part of our Great Commission Collective. And I was reminded that even though they have a much more beautiful accent in their English than we do, even though our Romanian brothers do not speak English perfectly, actually neither do we, I was reminded of the fact that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will have representatives at the throne room of God because of what we're studying today, the cross of Jesus Christ. So let me read this section. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Perhaps you're not. I want to make sure we're all on the same page, literally. And then we'll dive in together. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them a prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began ask, asking Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloth, Twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, 
which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. With him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuilt it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The account of the crucifixion of Jesus. I have to tell you, I was a little overwhelmed as I anticipated preaching this section. There's so much that could be said about the crucifixion. There was a Journal of American Medical Association article in the 1986, you can Google it and find it. It's a fascinating article on the medical and scientific realities of a Roman crucifixion. There's also other gospel accounts of the crucifixion that provide other details, other characters. So much could be said about the crucifixion, and yet Mark uses three words in the Greek to describe it. Three words to describe what so much has been written about. Three words to describe what other gospel writers embellish. So the challenge I had was to approach this text in a worthy manner. And what I've been led to do is to follow Mark's lead. Mark had a purpose in his crucifixion narrative. And I pray that as I preach it, I will reflect what he intended for his original audience. You see, I think sometimes we come to the cross and we have the same reaction that one commentator described in an illustration of an African chief. This African chief was making her way to a missionary's grass hut, and as she passed the tree outside of the door, she saw on the tree a small mirror and gasped and stood back at the reflection. 
See, what she saw was a reflection of a face that was painted ferociously with headdressings that were frightening. And she declared to the missionary, what is that person in the tree? The missionary responded, that is a reflection of you. The chief demanded that the missionary sell him the sell her the mirror, and as soon as she had bought it, she took it in her hands and shattered it on the ground. She declared after that event that I will not have that person looking back at me ever again. And see, I think that's sometimes what happens to us as humans when we see the cross. You see, when we see the cross for what it is, we see the king for who he is. And when we see the king for who he is, we see us for who we are. And often what we do is, in response, we are frightened. What we do in response is we try to control it. We try to numb it. We try to run away from it. We try to shatter it so that we no longer see the king for who he is or us for who we are. We see the king for who we want him to be and us for who we want ourselves to be. And I think what Mark is doing in the details that he provides and the brevity of his description of the cross is the big idea in your notes. The cross requires us to respond. So you will be challenged to respond to this text. I have been challenged this week to respond to this text. But what is exposed is a reflection of the true king. And we will see four illustrations of response and one opportunity. The first illustration of a response is in the religious leaders, number one, and their illustration is a response of pride. As we reflect on the Gospel of Mark, it's important to go all the way back to verse one. Verse one says that Mark was writing an account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is Mark, as the author, saying that as I unpack these stories with which you, the original audience, would have been familiar, as I unpack these vistas of Christ, I am intending to show you that this Jesus is the Son of God. And if you will write down one phrase in your notes, write down one phrase in your Bibles outside of Mark 15, would you write down Son of God? The Son of God is a crucial title that spans all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The Son of God title means that the God of the universe has a special and unique relationship with that Son. The title Son of God means that the creator of the universe has unique expectations of that title holder, Son of God. The first candidate for Son of God was Adam himself. You can write down Genesis 5 and verse 1. There was a certain unique relationship that God had with his son. There was a certain unique expectation that God had with his son, that he would expand the glories of God to cover the corners of the known earth, that he would protect that kingdom and pursue holiness. And Adam failed, didn't he? which required a second title holder. That second title holder candidate is revealed in Exodus 4.22 where a group of people, the people of Israel, are referred to by God as his son. 
And there was a unique relationship between the creator and that group of people known as the Son of God. And there were unique expectations that God, the King of the universe, had for his Son. But Israel failed. And so another candidate was required. And a third candidate was raised up. That was an individual who was the Son of David. In 2 Samuel 7, 14, God, the King of the universe, said, Your Son, David, I will call Son. And there was a unique relationship, and there were unique expectations. And while Solomon started so well, he failed miserably, which required a fourth candidate who is revealed to us in Daniel 7.13. One who will be like the Son of Man, who will approach the Ancient of Days, who will be given an everlasting kingdom to have dominion where Adam and Israel and Solomon had failed. And he will pursue righteousness. And that kingdom will be holy where Adam and Israel and Solomon had failed. And you see beautifully that through all of Scripture, Son of God is at the center. And so the experts on Scripture would be very familiar with that. And here they are in verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests. These were the individuals holding the office that was required to protect and pursue holiness for God's people. The elders, these were the leaders and the authority in the synagogues and the places of worship and the scribes, these were the experts on the facts of Scripture and connecting the dots of the theology of Scripture. They were tasked with teaching and applying God's Word and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, if anybody would know and be experts on who Jesus was, It would be them. Jesus had revealed to them the truth. In fact, back in chapter 14, we studied this last week. The chief priest walked into their midst during the court trial, and he said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and not only that, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. You will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. I am he, Jesus said. They were presented as experts with the truth, but there was a problem. It exposed them. I was at a Royals game a couple weeks ago with my father-in-law and brother-in-law, and we were talking about baseball, and they were asking me, the expert, what are they doing here? Why are they doing that? What do you think about this? And I, like the Pharisee, responded with my expertise. Well, my brother-in-law was asking me about Salvi, if you're not familiar with him, he's our catcher. If you're not familiar with baseball, the catcher puts down signs for the pitcher to know what pitch the catcher wants him to throw. And my brother-in-law asked me about the electronic device on Salvi's wrist and about the voice that the pitcher hears in his hat. And I, I have to tell you, I thought they were telling me that aliens had landed at Area 51. Because from the history of time, catchers put down signs for the pitcher. And so I, as the expert on all things baseball, declared to them that is ridiculous. Baseball would never allow an electronic device on the catcher's wrist to send the signals with a voice to the pitcher, you are ridiculous. My brother-in-law is a jokester, so I thought he was just trying to pull the wool over my eyes, but he presented an article from a reputable source That said, there's an electronic device on the catcher's wrist. 
And see, in that moment, I have to tell you, my flesh was rising to the surface. I wanted to explain to them how ridiculous this was and how this will never continue and how Salvi must hate this, but there was an article to say he actually loves it. And see, what was welling up inside of me as an expert on baseball is that I was being exposed to be wrong. What was welling up inside of me was pride. And this is what's happening to these religious leaders. They are presented with the truth of who the king is. And guess what? It exposes them. The conclusions that they had drawn about Messiah, the conclusions that they had drawn about their authority and their expertise by this tradesman from Nazareth, by this uneducated rabbi, exposed them and it shamed them. And they had an opportunity. Would they respond in humility or like I, like I did at the Royals? Look at verse 1. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. What an opportunity tragically missed. Listen, the gospel, the cross, Christ exposes us. We are wrong. Who we thought we were, what we thought the standards were, what we thought the rules of the game were on our own are wrong. And it requires us to humble ourselves. And when the religious leaders were presented with the king as he truly is, and them as they truly were, look at verse 10, even Pilate saw it. He perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests delivered him up. Oh, friend, can you not relate to this? When you look at the mirror of the cross, when you see Christ for the majesty that he actually is. It exposes us. It makes us look like the wretch that we actually are. But how will we respond? Will we respond in humility or like the religious leaders in pride? The second illustration of a response is Rome. And their response is pragmatic. The Roman Empire did not grant the right to condemn someone to capital punishment. And so, historically speaking, there was a necessity of that last phrase. They led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, to the governor of Judea. Now, what's interesting about this is that Mark does not provide a whole lot of historical detail. So that makes us understand that the original audience knew who Pilate was. And so let me bridge the gap by sharing with you that Pilate was the governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. As governor, he was assigned the task through contract from the emperor to uphold peace and keep the tax line flowing. That was his task. And as we look at the rest of Scripture, as we look at historical documents, Pilate was very good at what he did. Now, Pilate was extremely dipl diplomatic. In fact, history tells us that when he came into Jerusalem for the first time, he brought with him images of the emperor, which the Jews obviously would view as idolatry, and they raised up a big stink, and they protested against it. And instead of doubling down, the pragmatic Pilate Hold back. 
But he wouldn't just pull back. There were times, like Luke 13, 1, you can write that down and look at it later, where he actually mixed the blood of worshipers with the blood of the sacrifices. He did so sensing that a potential insurrection would take place. Pilate was contracted to ensure that peace was upheld. And so anytime a riot was threatened, anytime the tax flow was threatened, Pilate would be decisive, but he was always pragmatic. Here's a definition for pragmatism. The end justifies the means. The end, the the goal justifies the process. And so let's unpack this a little bit because pragmatism in itself is not wrong. You and I engage with pragmatism just about every day of our lives. There's three questions that I would encourage you to write down as we evaluate our own pragmatism. Number one, what is the goal? So if pragmatism is that the end or the result justifies the process, we must first evaluate what is the goal. Let's consider the activity of eating. Uh, Maybe some of you, the goal of eating is nutrition, then you're probably not going to stop at Quick Trip. Others of you, it might be speed. You will stop at Quick Trip. The question we must ask when we're evaluating pragmatism is, what is the goal? But then second of all, what is the measure of the importance of that goal? How important is that goal? Again, eating, depending on what time of the day, what day of the week, the importance of the goal of eating will probably change. Which leads to number three, what are the standards for evaluating the process? See, these questions must be asked. As human beings, we will demonstrate an exercise of pragmatism constantly throughout our days here on earth. But what is the goal? How important is the goal? And what is the standard by which we measure the process are important questions to ask with pragmatism. With Pilate and with the Roman soldiers, it was self-preservation. We see that clearly in the way that Pilate processed even this situation. Look at verse 3. There were many charges brought about Jesus, but which one does Pilate home in on? Well, verse 2, verse 9, verse 12. In verse 26, Pilate homes in on king of the Jews. Anyone who makes a claim that they are king is a potential threat to the empire. Anyone who makes a claim that they are king is a potential instigator of insurrection. Then look at the soldiers, verse 16. They are seasoned soldiers. Verse 16 tells us it was a battalion, so these were hundreds of seasoned veteran soldiers. Their allegiance was ultimately to Caesar. And so look at the way that they treat Jesus. Verse 17, they put a purple cloak on him. Verse 17, they place a crown of thorns on him. Verse 18, they actually declare a phrase that was required of soldiers when they were in Caesar's presence. Hail, king of the Jews. Verse 19, they were kneeling and paying homage to him. Verse 23, they gave him wine mixed with myrrh, which, by the way, Many commentators and pastors focus on this mixture producing a numbness so that the one being executed wouldn't feel the full force of the pain. And given enough alcohol, that would have been the case. But historically speaking, wine mixed with myrrh was a beverage of the upper class. 
So more than a numbing of pain, this particular drink would have been a, an expression of mockery. Verse 24, they divided his clothes and cast lots. Friends, to them, Jesus was just another piece of their day. They all woke up, as we often do, with goals for the day. For them, it was self-preservation. For them, it was self-advancement. For them, it might have been even survival. But for them, as they were presented with Jesus, as they were presented with his crucifixion, he was simply another piece of their day. A piece of their day that was simply a part of the process of accomplishing their goals. Who defined their goals? Well, their emperor defined their goals. They defined their goals. And the same is true for most of us each day. Why are you here this morning? What is the pragmatism of your attendance at Ascend, listening to this sermon, engaging with your Bible, engaging with notes? What is your goal? How important is that goal? What is the standard that you are using to to measure the process and analyze the process of achieving that goal? Is this just a piece of your day? Well, if it is, you are engaging with the truth, but just like the soldiers and Pilate and the inscription above Jesus, it is simply an expression of religion or even mockery. Look at what happened to Pilate in verse 15. He handed over Barabbas. Interestingly enough, his name means son of the father. Handed over Barabbas, who was a convicted insurrectionist. Again, think about Pilate's contract. It was to promote and uphold peace. This man actually in the resurrection, there's an article before that, the insurrection. It was a known event of insurrection, and Pilate moved swiftly to put all of the instigators in prison, and yet to satisfy the crowd, verse 15 says, he took an insurrectionist and released him, and a teacher of peace, and crucified him. When the Romans were confronted with a clear view of the king, And who they truly are, they responded with pragmatism. Number three, we also see the crowd who responded with popularity. The crowd has been present with Jesus from the beginning. Oftentimes it was great. In fact, one time in chapter five, it says that they had to remove Jesus because the crowd was so great and was pressing in that they were actually fearful for his safety. The crowd would shout. The crowd would put their cloaks on the ground so that his donkey could walk over them. The crowd was around Jesus constantly, but it was driven by popularity. Man, big crowds can be electric, can't they? In 1991, I attended the World Series between the Twins and the Braves, and I went to the garbage can, which was the Metrodome in Minneapolis, It was known as that because it was like this inflatable top and it would get so loud in there. And I remember being with my dad and watching this game and 
Even as a 16-year-old, I was amazed at how different the people looked that were coming into the stadium. People from all kinds of social backgrounds and economic backgrounds and all different sizes and shapes. But when Scott Leas hit that home run, man, was there a unison. Man, was it loud. In fact, so loud that I was standing next to my dad shouting at him. He had no idea that I was even trying to get his attention. That crowd was unified in popularity. And that was often what happened throughout the Gospel of Mark. They were amazed at his teaching and healing in chapter 1. They pursued him for physical benefit in chapter 5. They wanted to have his opinion on politics in chapter 11. And even in chapter 11, they declared, Jesus is the son of David. The kingdom of David is at hand in unison, joining their voices from all different walks of life because that was what was popular. Look at what it says in verse 11. As they, the ones who had just declared a few days before that Jesus was the son of David, the chief priest stirred and yelled out, free Barabbas. Verse 13, Pilate asks, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? And they yell, imprison him. Is that what it says? No, so worked up in their pursuit of popularity was the yell to crucify Jesus. Stirred up by individuals who could make their lives better. Stirred up by individuals who were members of the aristocracy. Stirred up to, like a flag, go from Jesus, the son of David, to crucify him within the span of days. And Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? And the people shout all the more. And and, and you can imagine, if you've been at one of these crowds where it is deafening the roar, crucify him, they shout out. Reminds me of Acts 19.32 where there was a riot in Ephesus. And Luke says the crowd was whipped into a frenzy so much that they didn't even remember why they were there. They didn't even know why they were shouting. That's what's going on here is the popularity of the crowd has shifted. And now everyone is on this page because that's what's popular. And that's what horizontally would benefit them. Pilate is worried about a riot, and so verse 15, he releases Barabbas and condemns Jesus for the purpose of satisfying the crowd. Throughout Mark, the crowd has been a flag in the wind. And friend, when you are confronted with King Jesus on the cross, and, and when you see yourself through the reflection of the cross, are you like a flag who's like, wow, man, Jesus, I, I'd, I'd like to pursue him. But then when, when you do and you realize that, wow, following after Jesus will result in suffering and persecution. And listen, we live in a day where that is increasing more and more, don't we? My wife and I were just talking about that this morning. Is how much our culture and government is antagonistically anti-Christian. It's not anti-religious. It's not anti-faith. It's anti-biblical Christianity. And how can you tell that? Post something on Twitter where you proclaim what the creator's design was for marriage. 
say undeniably that marriage is only between a biological man and a biological woman, and the fact that we have to add those descriptors is evidence enough. But then say that biologically a man is a man assigned by the creator at birth, not by a doctor, not by a birth certificate, and and see what happens. Probably the response is not going to be 100%. Amen, brother. How about identity today? People who say that I'm something different than I was that was assigned by the creator. People today are doing what is right in their own eyes and unwilling to submit to the standards of the creator and what he says about himself, what he says about us, and how he says we are to live. That is our society, and it is increasing more and more. And beloved, listen, if you and I stand up prayerfully with love, but absolutely declaring truth, guess what will happen? It will not be popular. And so, friend, you are being confronted with the cross of Jesus Christ, which reveals the king, which reveals you. How will you respond? Because the crowd responded with going what was horizontally popular. But number four, the last characters that we see here are the bystanders, and they are processing. The crucifixion was public. We see in verse 21, Simon of Cyrene was passing by from the country. It's interesting, by the way, that he is named and also named are his sons, which, by the way, I think it's interesting. When you look at the Gospel of Mark and you see the very few people outside of Jesus' disciples and Jesus that are named, it is likely because they were known by the original audience, which I think that's interesting when you consider Barabbas. But he says there's Simon of Cyrene, He says that there were people who are passing by, verse 29. The reason for this is because Romans would crucify people in public places. They would crucify people where there would be a highway or a lot of crowd passing by because they wanted to make sure that this would be a warning that you do not go against Rome. We don't know where the cross and and Calvary was. Here's a picture of one place that is traditionally believed to have been the place. This is Gordon's Calvary, Calvary. (laughs) but what you see is you see caves on the side of that cliff, and if you stand back far enough, it looks like it could be reflecting a skull. Others believe that it's at the side of a church of the Holy Sepulchre. We don't know exactly where it was, but what we do know is it was outside of the walls of Jerusalem, and it was near a highway so that it would be visible to many people coming in and out of Jerusalem. And especially since this was the time of the Passover, it is no wonder, verse 29 says, that there were people who passed by. But look at the first response of the processing. They derided him. They mocked him. The mocking is... Noted here in verse 21.9, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The chief priests also join in. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross. What's interesting about mockers is mockers will use truth. It's fascinating to see how many people today will try to defend same-sex attraction from Scripture. 
They will try to use scripture, and yet what they do is they twist it, take things out of context to fit their own narrative. That's what mocking is. And so these religious leaders say, listen, Jesus, you who say you're the Christ, you who say you're the king, come down and we'll believe you. They're twisting things. That's what mocking is. So mocking is the first expression of processing, but then look at what it says in verse 37. After Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which comes from Psalm 22, verse 1, these individuals didn't mock. In fact, one of them went, ran, and grabbed a, what's referred to here as a cheap expression of thirst quenching. Verse 36. Put sour wine on a reed. It quenched Jesus' thirst for a moment and listened to what the individual said. Wait, let's wait. Look, we're not going to mock him. We're not going to reject him. But let's see. Let's see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. Come to take him down. And then look what it says. Verse 33, there was darkness over the whole land. Verse 38 is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. The veil of the temple was torn in two. And we don't know exactly what veil this was, although the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, seems to indicate this was the curtain that would keep people from entering the Holy of Holies where the Spirit of God dwelt. And it says that that massive curtain, which history tells us was likely 30 feet tall, which, by the way, the highest point in this room is 29 feet. So this is a massive curtain. But look at what it says. It says it was torn from where? Top to the bottom. If this was a human being tearing it, they would start from the bottom and make their way to the top. This is a supernatural reality. And the author of Hebrews, who later in Scripture, with more revelation given to him, reveals that this was not only a physical event, this had spiritual ramifications to express to everyone who is familiar with Scripture that the approach to God that was required through the Mosaic Law was completed in Christ. You could write that down and take that to the bank. This event right here is one of the most important events between the Old and the New Testament. It moves us from the shadows of festivals and sacrifices and ceremonies and law to the substance of Christ. That is what the veil being torn reveals. And that's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves. Why? Because of the significance of the fulfillment of Jesus through the cross and the resurrection. The cross of Christ is significant. And listen, beloved, it requires a cosmic upheaval of our lives. This is not some campfire experience where we get a little emotional because of a guitar-led song that's led in the evening. It's not to say that those experiences aren't real. But surrendering to the, cause, to the gospel of Jesus Christ requires us to change everything everything through the blood of Christ. It is the realization that the reality that we've been living in is not reality. The reality of the gospel is reality. 
The way we live from the moment of conception is this this pseudo-reality as though everything that we are doing is right. As though the things that cause pleasure in our lives are truly satisfying. As though the definitions and expectations we place on our lives are right. But the fact is, it's pseudo-reality. It reminds me of a movie that I love, The Truman Show. Jim Carrey is the main character, and if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you about it. He lives his life in a reality that is not real. Everyone in his life is an actor. All of the events of his life are choreographed by a director. And throughout his life, there are instances where people try to tell him, Truman, this is not real. There are moments in his life when a spotlight falls from the sky and they call it a satellite to try to keep him distracted. Truman responds to the revelation of reality in different ways, sometimes anger, sometimes disbelief. There's a lot of humor. But friends, this is often what happens when we are confronted with the reality of the king on the cross and the reality of who we are. You see, some of us mock, some of us wait, but there is only one response that is required, only one response that is appropriate, and this is where the religion of biblical Christianity is exclusive. There is only one way, and here's what it requires. It requires a transfer of loyalty. You see, back then, all they saw on the cross, those who mocked, And those who waited was a Jewish man who was uneducated, who was born in an animal feeding trough, who was a tradesman, who when he was executed did not resist, who was crucified next to two other insurrectionists. That's who they saw. But the reality is that this is the creator of the universe. The reality is this is the king of the universe. And the reality is captured in verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him, this is the one who was the officer who oversaw the the crucifixion. When he saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, most likely meaning that when he yelled out with a loud voice, usually people didn't do that right before they died on the cross. When he saw that, he declared, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, your footnote says that it could be or a son of God, and grammatically, there is an argument for that, but I think when you look at the grammar and when you look at Mark's argument throughout his gospel, I think the centurion said this is the Son of God. How could a pagan Gentile Roman officer see all of this that was taking place and hear his governor say, the king of the Jews? Hear his fellow soldiers say, the king of the Jews? Hear the passers-by say, the king of the Jews? The religious leaders, the king of the Jews? The crowd, the king of the Jews? In a mocking fashion, and he declared the son of God. Because when he saw the king and when he saw himself, he responded appropriately. Now, we don't know whether or not he gave his life to Christ. His name isn't mentioned here. 
But we do see that Mark is setting up what is required to be a disciple of Christ. Look at verse 40. There also were women looking on from a distance. Now, why does Mark include this? You can write down Galatians 3.28. In the historical context, women would not follow a rabbi. And yet here we see this rabbi bringing in women. Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither Jew, there is neither Greek, there is neither male, female, slave, or free. We are all equal at the foot of the cross because our, our measure is spiritual. And so Mark is reminding the original audience there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and Joseph and Salome. But here's the most important part, verse 41. When he was in Galilee, they followed him. Remember way back at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, what did Jesus say to the disciples that made them disciples? Follow me, and they did. And what is the great expression of following Jesus? Look at what it says in verse 41. They also ministered to him. They were devoted to him. They spent time with him. They sacrificed for him. He was number one in your lives, beloved. That is the gospel. Friends, this is the only appropriate response, which brings us to number five, your opportunity. We've seen the religious leaders. We've seen Rome. We've seen the crowd. We've seen the bystanders. But what about you? You? 